this evening is going to work, first I'm going to introduce you to our, our what's the like, celebrated speaker, delected, what, choose the title. <laughs> Uh, Peter is my name, and that's a, <laughs> as good a title as any, I think. Yeah. <laughs> to Peter, and then, um, so when you know him a little bit better, we'll get into a few groups to come up with some questions together, to write them down. We'll stick them in this box, and uh, me and Beth and Terry will sort through any duplicates and stuff, and give them to Peter to, to look at. And then, uh, Peter said, if anyone wants to put up their hand or come back with anything, that's right, isn't it, then yeah. you're more than welcome to, feel free. Um, chip in with things and if you don't feel brave enough to ask a question like just by putting your hand up then you can have more paper and just stick it in the box or give it to me and Beth and we'll sort through and it'll sort of be anonymous if you're the only person who walks up with a piece of paper and then I read it out then people will know you asked it but it might some people prefer to write stuff down um, so we'll start this is Peter uh, Peter Hello. what what's your job what do you do Gosh, well, um, I'm uh, a Christian philosopher and uh, someone also who's got an interest in what, the area of what's called Christian apologetics more broadly. Now, it would be quite useful to um, unpack for you what those two things mean. Um, philosophy um, its probably a subject that you meet earlier on in life uh, than back in when, the day when I was doing uh, school and A-levels and so on. I didn't come across philosophy until I went to my first university, but now you can do philosophy and ethics uh, A-levels, AS-levels and so on, so you tend to meet it a bit lower down. But philosophy is that subject um, that's really trying to grapple with, with the really big ideas, the really big questions about life, the universe and everything. And if you kind of think of it as the subject that's trying to grapple with what's true... In, in those areas where science can't answer the question for you. Because science is uh, really good at answering certain types of question about reality, um, but there's, there's more to reality than science can tell you about. Um, and this is obvious, for example, from the fact that in order to, to do science, you have to have certain beliefs about reality, otherwise you wouldn't bother doing science. You, you, you could have beliefs about reality, for example, that would make uh, the idea of doing science seem really silly. And obviously, you, you, if you're going to do science, you don't want to have beliefs in place that make it stupid to even think about doing science. Um, but science can't answer those issues of, well, is it, is it sensible to do, to do science? And how do we know things like um, the basic laws of, of how we argue properly, how we reason, what's called logic. Because um, if you're going to do science, you want to argue well. Um, but how do we know that we can argue well? What is a good argument? How do we tell a good one from a bad one and so on? Um, so philosophy deals with those kind of questions. And one of the nice things about philosophy as a subject, if you meet it later on in school or whatever, is whatever else you're interested in in life, there'll be a, a philosophy of that subject associated with it. So you might be really into, say, music and art and so on, but there's a whole area of philosophy called aesthetics which, it, which asks questions like, well, what is art? What is beauty? Um, is there a real difference between beauty and ugliness? And how do we know? 
and so on. Um, so any of the sort of subjects that you might deal with in school or at university, there'll be a, a, a philosophy dealing with the really foundational questions that underlie those subjects. So it's like the most, the most foundational and basic of the, of the subjects. Um, apologetics, on the other hand, um, that's more to do with trying to help people to see and understand that Christianity um, has a way of looking at the world, at the world that makes sense, um, that's coherent and that's plausibly true, um, and that's uh, uh, therefore you end up dealing with a broader set of issues than those that you meet in philosophy. You deal with philosophical issues, but you'll also end up dealing with issues like what's the archaeological evidence for the reliability of a certain story in the Bible or whatever. That, that would also be doing apologetics. It's a terrible word because if you say apologetic, you think in English, you immediately think of apologize. I'm terribly sorry that I'm, you know, I go around telling people I'm terribly sorry that I'm a Christian, you know. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It, it comes from an ancient Greek word um, that means to give a defense, to give your reasons for something. It was a, a term that they would apply to a lawyer in, in court, say, yeah. Yes, so there's a, there's a you can see kind of how the word has evolved through time. Um, it's evolved from saying um, I wasn't in the wrong, I was actually right, and here's why. And then it's evolved over time to saying um, yes, I, I I I was in the wrong, and let me explain why I'm sorry and why why I'm going to behave differently in the future and why you. You know, you shouldn't let that get in the way of our relationship because I'm really sorry, kind of thing. So in a sense, you're, you're defending yourself, but it, it, you can see how the, the word has kind of changed over, over hundreds of years of, of history, yeah. I'm glad you explained apologetics. People said, <laughs> what's apologetics? And I said, explaining Christian stuff. Yeah. That was a much better that's, explanation. That's, but... <laughs> there you go, now you know what that is. Um, so you talked about, um, with the philosophy about arguments and things. Do you enjoy mm. arguments and discussions and debates? And if so, why or why not? Yeah, as long as you don't think of argument as getting angry at people and getting hot under the collar. That, of course, is not nice. Um, it, what we mean in philosophy by an argument is, is, yes, disagreeing with someone about something, but doing it agreeably. Not, not disagreeing in a disagreeable manner, but saying... We have a difference of opinion, and instead of getting angry at each other, or instead of me trying to get you to believe what I do by saying, if you don't believe what I do, I'm going to hit you with a big stick, and you saying, yeah, but I've got a bigger stick. <laughs> uh, what you actually do is you, you try and reason the other person into believing the same thing that you do. Uh, a theologian once said, um, civilised people argue with one another... Barbarians club each other, each other over the head. <laughs> um, so arguing in that good sense of trying to help one another to discover the truth. Um, that's what philosophical argument should, should be about. And when it, when it really is that, then it's a really enjoyable and uh, fruitful thing. 
yeah, sometimes you might, exactly, you, you agree to disagree, uh, but then you say, well, maybe I can, try and, I can change your mind through giving you a, a good argument, a good reason to change your mind, uh, rather than just trying to, to force you or to put peer pressure on you, say, uh, so you feel that you ought to go along with the crowd or whatever, but so that I give you a reason that you actually come to, to think, yes, I, I didn't used to see things that way, but now, now I see that that, 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 that is a, a better way to look at it, that is more plausibly the right way to see things. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, last question. What's your favourite thing to do in the whole world? Mm. Gracious me. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I have eclectic tastes in music. I really like a genre of music called prog rock, um, which is not terribly fashionable these days, but I really like uh, the whole range of prog rock, classic and modern. And I like uh, reading sci-fi and fantasy and watching sci-fi and fantasy films. That, that's my relaxation. Yeah. What's your favourite sci-fi? Oh, I'm, a, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. best, best Doctor... Oh gosh! Well, I, I, I am I am so old, ladies and gentlemen, that I can remember watching episodes of Doctor Who starring Tom Baker the first time round. <laughs> so he was my Doctor when I was a child. So I really like Tom Baker, um, but I have really loved Matt Smith, and I'm you know I so want another year. I want another year of Matt Smith, but he's going. Ah. Uh. Okay, yeah. so what we're going to do now, um, aside from Doctor Who, and Peter's proven his wisdom by saying Matt Smith's the best Doctor, um, <laughs> we'll get into circles of about six, groups of about six, around the people you're with, make a circle in your chest, I'll bring some paper and pens round, come up with some questions that you really want to ask Peter to get answered. Okay, so, how's it going to work? The minions are sorting out the duplicates, and then um, they'll give them to me. I'll read them out, and Peter will answer them. Notice that before, if you want to um, put your hand up, chip in, ask more questions, bits you don't understand, bits you disagree with, that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, just checking that is perfectly fine. And um, we can um, go from there. Okay, so the first question, which I took, it was the first one I took out of the box, it says... How do we take the Bible literally when it seems to contradict itself? Great question, yeah. This is a question about interpreting the Bible sensibly. Um, and it's interesting that you, you use the word li- interpreting it literally there. Um, because um, when you look back in, in the history of, of thinking about interpreting the Bible, um, to interpret a text literally used to mean interpreting it according to the kind of literature that it is. Okay? So, um, if you came across a a poem, and it said in the poem, um, her lips were as red as a rose, Um, her hair uh, was a a river, she had a, a river of hair cascading from her head, um, you, you, if you read that poem literally, uh, that is according to the kind of literature that it is, that would mean understanding that um, 
there was, you know, an analogy being used to describe the colour of her lips, and that when, it, when the poet says, uh, and her hair was a, you know, a river of hair, that it didn't mean that her hair was really, really wet, and that you might drown in it <laughs> were you to give her a hug, okay? Um, but again, this is one of those terms that has kind of shifted its meaning over time. And, and nowadays, when you think about a literal reading of a text, you would, you would think in, in terms of ignoring the kind of clues about well, what kind of literature, what, what kind of use of language is going on here, and to ignore those kind of things and to, to take it literalistically and to interpret it as if it were saying, you might drown in her hair. And then you might be able to point to a bit of the poem later on, where maybe, you know, um, they embrace each other and he doesn't drown, and say, well, look, this, this poem's contradicting itself, because here it says, you know, her hair is a river, and over here they have a hug, and he doesn't drown. And that's a contradiction, isn't it? See? But that's because you haven't paid attention to the, the way in which language is being used, what is meant to be communicated in the language. And that is the, the kind of first rule, really, of, of interpreting literature, is to, to work out what clues are there as to how the language is being used, what kind of thing is being meant, how is language being used to communicate here. And, and when you pay attention to that kind of thing, that often then gets us over a lot of the problems that people have about literalistic readings of, of bits of literature in the Bible that are not necessarily meant to be taken in a literalistic way. Now, that doesn't mean that if a bit of literature, even a bit in the Bible, doesn't have a literalistic meaning, it's not the same kind of literature as a geography textbook... Or, you know, or a chemistry textbook or something. Um, obviously, that's not the only way to make true, true claims about reality, to communicate something that's true. That, that love poem communicates something that's, that's true. Um, it's just that it's not using a dry, scientific, literalistic kind of language to communicate it in. You've got to be aware of that when you interpret it. And it's, it's a lot like that with the Bible as well. We want often it to be a very, very neat, immediately understandable, kind of like a, you know, here are the things that you have to memorise to pass your exam in the textbook, Bob's your uncle. And actually, God has given us this really fascinating, complex collection of, of different kinds of literature um, that call on, call on us to really to really think and engage and understand the cultural background and, and context of the of the writings and so on before we can understand it in a, in a literal uh, according to the kind of literature it is manner. So that's really important. Good question. Yeah. Um, Robert. Yes, I, I was using I was using a as philosophers often do with things in, in philosophy. You use examples that are very clear or very extreme in order to make a point, and you have to kind of take it as as read that I'm, I'm making it, it very clear by using a clear case. And obviously, there will be there will be instances where this kind of process of thinking applies, but it's a lot harder to tell 
what kind of literature is it, for example. So that's why you will end up with different Christian groups and different Christians understanding what the Bible is saying in certain places in, in, in a somewhat different way because they, they have different understandings of, of what the text is actually saying. Um, and that's usually because, actually, that, that will mean that bit of the text is probably quite difficult to understand. If it were really easy to understand, it's much more likely that everybody would understand it the same way. Okay? So, and what you tend to find, particularly coming back to the Bible, you tend to find that the very beginning and the very end of the Bible, so the opening chapters of Genesis, the closing chapters of Revelation, you know, the creation account and thinking about matters to do with the second coming, there's a whole lot of different Christian interpretations of those bit of scripture. Um, but it's not as if Christians are divided over whether or not there's a God, or whether or not God rescued Israel from Egypt, or whether or not Jesus was you know, the son of God who died on a cross and rose again on the third day. Um, because the bits of literature in the Bible that tell us those things are obviously much more straightforward and easy to understand. <laughs> okay? um, but when you're trying to sort through the, the harder bits... There's obviously a harder job of interpretation to be done in terms of really understanding what kind of literature, what kind of, of claims are being communicated by those bits of scripture. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there a conflict in my contradiction? Is that, say, some of the essays are probably a bit more kind of literal and less poetic. Um, God says, don't murder. And also, okay, or yeah. what are and then uh, does tell his rights to go and take someone's take someone's land and go and kill them, which is like yeah. both of the which is two of the commands. Yeah, sort of right. Yes. So um, again, how do you interpret, say that the command about not, well, as you said, this is, is is the issue. Is it don't kill or don't murder, and what what is the definition of murder? basically, versus some bits of text where sometimes in the Old Testament God does say, you need to go and fight a battle against this, this, this people, uh, and I want you to win. <laughs> and, you know, fighting battles and winning them usually involves killing some people. Okay? Um, even today, we sometimes think that you can have situations where actually going and having a battle and killing people, you know, it may be regrettable as it is, is, is the right thing to do in the situation. Um, do soldiers in a war if it is a just war, are they breaking the command, do not murder? Well, it's going to depend upon what it means by murder. If, if, if the do not murder is do not kill, then obviously there would be a contradiction. If it is do not murder, and murder is uh, taking someone else's life without a sufficient reason to do it, and a just war is, involves taking people's lives because there is a sufficient reason to do it, well, then there is no contradiction between the two. So the answering that specific issue is going to depend upon what you think of, well, how do I define murder and how do I define just war and are these, or are these not instances of these concepts contradicting with one another or actually when you understand them in a deeper manner do they do they consist with each other 
fine. Do, are they consistent with, with one another? Um, so there it's not so much a matter of what kind of literature is it, but getting into a typical philosophical question of, well, what do you mean by <laughs> this particular bit of language? What are you actually claiming? Um, and when you think more carefully about it, perhaps you then see, oh, okay, it, it, what appears to be a contradiction when you don't think about it very much at a deeper level isn't, can be shown not to be. Yeah. Um, Andy. Um, but different versions of the Bible use the word murder or kill, and mm. it's different. So if you're trying to understand the meaning of it, how can mm. you do it if there's different versions of the same thing? Yeah, and this, this is a difficulty with the fact that we, as non-Hebrew readers, for example, are usually we're usually working off different people's translations of a text in a foreign language, a text in a foreign language from a, from an ancient culture. And as we've seen a couple of times already tonight, words can change their meaning over time. And you know, translating a really old text is even harder than translating a modern text. And that's why you will find some differences in language between different. Bible translations, and there are different. There are actually different philosophies of how you should translate texts. Some Bible translations try and, and stick as close as possible to a word-by-word translation. What word in English is closest in meaning to this word in Hebrew? Other translations try and go for a, a thought-by-thought, concept-by-concept kind of translation, where they say, "What is this sentence saying?" And what is the clearest way to say the same thing in English words? And that can make text appear differently. So what can you do? Apart from going and learning Hebrew, you know, so you can learn the original, um, you can look up on the internet, um, something like Strong's Concordance or whatever, and work, find out a sort of dictionary of, of, of the, the, the meanings of the terms, the range of meanings that a word has because often a word means more than one thing, and how you interpret it depends on the context, how people tended to use it in that culture, and so on. Um, who is translating? But read a number of different translations. Where at my Bible study group, the church that I go to, when we study any passage of Scripture, we often read out the, the, the passage we're going to examine in three or four different Bible translations. We might read it in the, the NIV, and um, the Good News, and the Message, and um, the RSV or something. Um, and then we will spend some time talking about the, the differences between those translations and how that might lead you to think different, different things and argue about, well, maybe for whom we need to go away and find out who, whose translation do we think is actually more accurate and so on. So, you know, when you get into these issues, there is sometimes no avoiding actually doing the hard work of having to, you know, get, at least get, get onto Google, get out, get out a commentary, get out a couple of different translations, and have a look, and, and, and work out who you think is making the, the best sense of, of the text. Well, you say that <coughs> murder is when you kill without sufficient reason. Well, then, what is sufficient reason? Mm. Absolutely. There you go. So, for example. Um, particularly when you, when you bring um, God uh, in, in, into the context, it might well be that you'd say, um, because God is the creator of life, 
it's kind of like he owns everything because he made everything. He, he owns our lives. And so one of the things that's wrong from a Christian viewpoint about uh, murder um, is that I am kind of taking control because God's given me free will. He doesn't want me to do this, but I, I'm, I'm kind of um, stepping into God's shoes and, and say, oh, well, I'm just going to take your life, you know, take your life. Um, not only have I wronged you, um, but I've wronged God. Every sin is not just a sin against another person, it's also a sin against God. Because he made us, he, he owns us, we owe him everything. We ought to, we're obligated to behave in ways that he approves of because God is the standard of what is goodness. God is goodness, personified, as it were. And his character is like the, the measuring rod against which things are judged to be good or, or bad. Um, so... Um, if, if God really did communicate to the Israel, Israelites, um, it is okay for you, actually, you need to, in this situation, have this battle, then they could be pretty confident that that was the right thing to do. They're not, it's not just a matter of them thinking, is this a just war or not? Um, by you know the international rules of war, which didn't exist back then, <laughs> um, but of actually thinking, you know, God, who is the standard of goodness and who knows a lot more about this stuff than we do, um, we're pretty clear that He's communicated to us that this is the right thing to do, um, and I don't see any overriding reason to think that we've misunderstood Him or anything. Um, that gives us confidence to to go and do it. Um, but so there are a whole kind of host of, of questions around not only, as you say, well, what is a good enough reason, um, but the fact that when you're looking at the, the biblical stories that we were, were talking about, we're not just talking about thinking at a, at a sort of human level, can we see a reason, but also thinking, could God see a reason and, and, and clearly communicate um, that that was what he wanted in that particular situation as well. I think we should go on to another question. Yeah. Um, minions. <laughs> Pick a pile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this one uh, is clearly come from... Right. What's the best... <laughs> Christian chat-up line. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, gracious me. I don't know if I know any Christian chat-up lines. Um, the chat-up line my, my father always told me was um, the, the, the reverse of what's a nice girl like you doing in a joint like this, which was, which was what's a nice joint like this doing in a girl like you. you know, kind of, but... Um, it works better if you're doing a medical degree or something and you can go up to someone and say, oh, what's a nice joint like this doing in a girl? Um, so, no, I don't think I have any particular um, pick-up lines. I'm, I'm not even sure, you know, uh, pick-up line is kind of the right approach to the whole issue from a Christian viewpoint. It's like, when you think about it, what, what is a pick-up line? It's, it's kind of like... <laughs> it's kind of like a quick bit of, of, of advertising or propaganda, isn't it? That's kind of trying to say to someone, um, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that you, you really want to go out with, give me a chance, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, 
perhaps from a Christian viewpoint, it's, actually, it's, it's better to actually take the approach of um, actually genuinely being interested in the other person um, for, uh, for all the, the right range of reasons um, and trying to say to someone, uh, I, I'm interested in you, I'd like to get to know you more and, um, and see if we can develop a relationship if you're interested in that as well. Um, let's do something about it. You know, be upfront about it. <laughs> Embarrassing as it is, you're taking the risk of being rejected. But that you know, any 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 expression or attempt to love someone else lays you open to the possibility of of hurt and, and rejection. Um, that's what God has done in creating us. Laid Himself open to the possibility of being hurt by our rejection of Him. Um, and our relationships with, with one another uh, reflect our creation in God's image. Um, and you have to, to take that risk. Um, that's, that's why it is romantic. Um, to actually be upfront about it and take a, a, take a risk. Say You're saying to someone else, I'm, I actually care enough about the possibility of a relationship with you to make myself vulnerable to you. That's what you're really doing when you approach someone. You're saying, I value you enough that I'm prepared to make myself vulnerable to the potential of you rejecting me. And that's a really romantic thing. And actually a really encouraging thing. If you think someone's coming to me and saying, they value me enough that they're giving me an opportunity to hurt them. Yeah? Um, So, what better advertisement for the kind of person you are, the kind of relationship you're, you want to offer to someone, then just being upfront about it and saying, I'd really like to go out with you if you'd like to go out with me. How about it? Uh, I was so impressed you managed to get something deep out of that question. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I have one Okay, the one I heard, which you wouldn't recommend saying after that deep reason was, so I was reading the Bible last night and I got to the book of Numbers and I realised I don't have yours. Oh! I go with that approach of the two. Okay. Um, <laughs> Did it work? Can I say? <laughs> Nine out of ten times. (laughs) 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 All right, next question. Um, This is a serious one. uh, There's two of these. It's difficult to move from that one to this one. Maybe I'll just quickly throw throw this one into between. That's fantastic. Right. (laughs) This one says. Uh, should there be women bishops? Hint, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is from where you're coming from. Uh, I better be careful. I, I attended Anglican Church back in Southampton as well. I, I come from a Baptist uh, background by upbringing. My parents uh, both attended a Baptist church, um, so I'm, I'm pretty nonconformist by, by background. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I probably wouldn't... Uh, necessarily have the whole bishop thing anyway Um, so I might dodge that one that way around but yeah I I, I don't see any reason why not to have uh, women bishops (laughs) 
<laughs> but, uh, but I speak as a layman on these issues, being a philosopher and not a uh, you know <laughs> church lawyer, theologian, or uh, Ah, yes. This, particularly immediately, immediately for me, raises to my mind uh, issues about, about disability uh, as well, both, both kind of physical, mental disabilities, um, long, talking about long-term medical disorders uh, and so on, and, and the whole question of what makes a life kind of worth, worth living, what is living life to the full? Now, there's, you know, there's an obvious sense in which, of course, we can talk about the, the, the normal kind of proper functioning of a human body, um, a normal, having a normal lifespan or whatever, although these things, over time, that lifespans get longer, for example, because we have better nutrition, uh, better medicine and so on, what, what would be considered a sort of average lifespan today. Um, back in the Middle Ages, you would have been, you know, really old. Um, and nowadays, you would just be considered like, I don't know, middle-aged or, or something. Because, good grief, you know, you've, you've got to 50 or something. Nowadays, we think more like sort of 70, 80 um, kind of things. Um, but what really makes a life worth living, and don't, I would say don't assume that just because you have some sort of long-term um, medical issue that that means your life is not worth living i i've got a very close friend um in southampton who has uh, a degenerative long-term uh, medical uh, condition um it does uh stop her from doing a lot of things that uh, you or i might take for granted uh, in in life and yet she would say that she has a life that is very rich, very worth living. Um, she uh, very creatively uh, finds ways around um, the problems that she has and celebrates the things that she can do uh, rather than um, focusing you know, as much as, as is possible on the things that you can't do. A um, number of years ago, uh, I had a, a girlfriend who was um, deaf, who was profoundly deaf. Um, and uh, I, again, that experience taught me, I, I think, that, that people who, who don't have a condition, um, it's very easy for people sometimes to, to look at someone else and kind of feel, if I had that problem, I would find it so difficult to cope with. It. I, I couldn't cope with that. Oh, that would you know, make my life not worth living. But actually, if you talk to the people who have the problems and have the conditions, uh, you tend to find that they, they say, yes, of course, there are difficulties about this. It's not ideal, but I have a great life. I, I really enjoy my life. Um, it is not the, the be-all and end-all of whether or not my life is meaningful or successful uh, and so on. Um, and particularly, again... Um, when you bring in 
a Christian set of criteria of what makes for a good life, which are often very countercultural to the kind of standards that our, our culture pushes on us to try and define what is a good life, a successful life. You know, am I famous? Am I making lots of money? Am I pretty? Am I slim? You know? Um, those are not biblical standards of success. Those are not things like, am I developing a Christ-like character? Um, am I um, successfully loving God and my neighbour as myself better day by day? Am I contributing towards the kingdom of God? Um, those are much deeper and more um, uh, m- more solid foundations for having a meaningful, successful life <laughs> than the, the ones that our culture puts upon us, um, you know? Definitely. Okay. Um, next, next question, please. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's like fireworks night, isn't it? Where someone's got control of the box of the different fireworks, and they come and say, ooh, now do this sparkler. It's like... <laughs> Um, how do you reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God in the New Testament? Um, for example, commanding people to invade and kill other people, stoning those people who break the law, then uh, saving the woman from the well who's about to be stoned, mm. um, and, and eating with sinners and all the kind of stuff that Jesus did that was rebellious. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, it's, I think it's easy to overplay the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and there is a, a, a core um, set of moral values that is consistent between them. There's a core set of values about things like um, looking after the poor and, and the destitute, um, the alien living amongst you, um, the fact that Israel had this experience of having been slaves in a foreign country and that they should not enslave or make people living amongst them feel second class and so on, that they should treat people who are not Israelite, um, but who are living amongst them um, just as fairly as everyone else and so on. Um, but yes, there are there are differences, and some of that has to do with the difference of going from, in the Old Testament, the relationship between God and Israel um, had this political dimension, uh, this relationship between God and a nation that 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 had a, a an ethnic dimension to it um, with this particular people group um, and then in the New Testament in the new covenant that um, people of God becomes extended to to anyone from any ethnicity or or, or nation group or one you you kind of break down that barrier. Paul talks about breaking down the barrier between, between Jew and Gentile. There's no more Jew and Gentile, male or female anymore, in Christ, slave or free. Um, those social barriers are, are broken down in the, in the new uh, covenant. Um, but again, reading back into um, the, the cultural kind of background and so on, um, when you understand things about law in a society where if you're a... Um, say a, a, no, a nomadic uh, kind of people and people break the law you can't exactly go and lock them up in your nice stone built prison 
to punish them. What are you going to do? Drag the prison along with you for 40 years in the wilderness? Or, um, you know, so um, you you have a a sort of uh, different system of of punishments and so on, and you start looking at the cultural contracts as as to why some of those um, differences are. Um, So I think looking at the cultural context helps, looking at the fact that there, there is a great deal of, of con- consistency and similarity of, of run-through, and it's easy to over-emphasise the differences. Um, and actually, um, I, I sometimes I, I do a talk on this issue, and I start off with a, a series of quotations on one side of my PowerPoint that are all kind of, um, you know, uh, be, uh, don't be afraid of man, but be afraid of God who can, who can uh, destroy your soul in, the, soul in the fires of hell. And uh, God will uh, judge people and, uh, you know, people who do this, that and the other won't enter the kingdom of God and so on. And then the other uh, side of the screen are all things that you should, you know, love the alien that dwells amongst you and love your your neighbour as yourself. And uh, God is uh, uh, slow to anger and abounding in, in, uh, in, in forgiveness and so on and so forth. Um, and, of course, the first set of quotations is all from the New Testament. And the, uh, the, the other set of quotations, which are apparently uh, more, more sort of peaceful and loving and so on, are all from the Old Testament. Uh, and so you can get a, a, an element of what's called, of, in science, would be called data picking, if you just focus on some things to the exclusion of other things. And I think you take a, a bit of a wider picture and you, you get the view that, yes, yes, there is a development in the Revelation and there is a change that happens historically, um, but it's, uh, it's not as big a, a, a difference as people sometimes portray it uh, as being, I think. So would you say it's sort of, sort of like the same, the same God and the same message, it's just that who he's talking to, the culture changes, and therefore it seems... Yeah, the cultural situation, you're talking to the, the, the relationship with a, with, a, with a people group, um, whether or not they're personally buying into the relationship with God to the relationship with God being of only a people who've chosen to opt in uh, to that relationship, not being a national ethnic relationship, but being a multinational inter-ethnic uh, relationship it, as culture changes over time. You know, look, at, look at an issue like slavery, for example. The New Atheists will often bring up sort of slavery in the Bible, and people talk about, oh, the Bible um, uh, accepted slavery, and uh, lots of Christians had, had slaves in the past, and quoted the Bible to defend that, uh, and then eventually we came to the opinion that slavery was wrong, and so on. But um, when we mention slavery today, we, we immediately think of the kind of slavery that happened in North America uh, with uh, black Africans being taken in the slave trade across the across the pond to Africa, where they worked on plantations as slaves. That's what we think of when you say slavery. Culturally, if you look back, say, to the Roman Empire, um, at any one time, about a third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. It was the social security system of its day, because they didn't have a social security system. Um, What people would do is, if they couldn't look after themselves, they would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery, which was a temporary contract that you had to be paid, that you eventually, you could save up enough to buy yourself out of the slavery. If you were a slave, you could be given positions of real power and so on. Think of the fact that, say, Joseph uh, in the Old Testament story basically ends up as prime minister of Egypt. 
under the Pharaoh. It's like, Pharaoh, Joseph, who's a slave, everyone else. Hang, hang on a minute. On the one hand, he's a slave. On the other hand, he's like running the economy. He's like Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, so your understanding of what slavery meant um, has to be informed by looking at what slavery meant in that cultural context rather than it being shaped by thinking about sort of, you know, what happened in the 18th century in America. Yes. Uh, that's, uh, uh, so uh, let me mention a few of their names and you will immediately go. So Richard Dawkins. Okay, if you heard of uh, Richard Dawkins or um, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, um, Daniel Dennett, A.C. Grayling, etc. There's a, a bunch of uh, atheist um, authors who, um, particularly after the 9-11 attacks in America... Um, there was this, this movement of publication of books by atheists who said, not only do we think that belief in God is, is wrong in the sense of being intellectually mistaken, because you know, that's what all atheists think, but these atheists also said, but we think religion is, at least on the whole, is a bad thing for society. All religion is, is not only wrong, it's bad, it's evil. And we need to sort of go and encourage people to give up religion and uh, to become atheists, uh, not just because that's the, the right opinion to hold, but because this is better for society. Uh, and this, this group of, of atheists with that kind of opinion have sometimes been called, they're not just atheists, but they're anti-theists. They're against theism have been, been called the, the new atheists. So just as there are different types of religions and different types of Christian and so on, there are different types of atheist. Um, and they all disagree with each other about certain things, just as much as you know, Christians do or religious people do. Yeah. I was wondering how sickos, like those atheists, could still be Well, because, I mean, it's, it's, it, it clearly is, it clearly is easy enough to point to religious people who have done bad things. Okay? That's easy to do. Of course, it's easy to point to non-religious people who have done bad things as well. But if you focus on pointing you know, at religious people doing bad things, um, you can make it uh, seem like religion is a bad thing. Kind of, but that's a little bit like saying... Um, Look at all the terrible things people have done in the name of politics because they have a certain political viewpoint. Um, um, therefore, we need to try and get rid of politics. Let's not have politics anymore. Or look at all the terrible people, things people do when they're in love. Being in love can make people do really stupid things, often things that hurt other people really badly. Wouldn't the world be a much better place if we got rid of love? You know, well, maybe that's kind of taking the argument a bit too far, as it were, sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, maybe what is the case is that, that people 
whatever political viewpoint they have and whatever religious viewpoint they have and whatever worldview they have and so on, people are capable of doing terrible things as well as great things. And um, yes, we should try and do everything we can to try to maximise the good things that people do and to minimise the bad things that they can do. Um, but it's, it's very simplistic to kind of paint everyone with the same brush and kind of say, like Christopher Hitchings, Christopher Hitchings wrote this book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Like, religion poisons everything. It turns everything bad. So, yeah, so, okay, so that's like, you mean the religion of the, the jihadist-influenced Muslim who flies an aeroplane into a building and the religion of the Quaker in America who, when uh, there's a famous incident, uh, some, some gunman, as they occasionally do in America and other places, went on a rampage and killed loads of people in this Quaker community. Uh, and um, the sort of leader of the community comes on television and says, no, we're absolutely devastated in our community uh, by this thing that this guy has done. And our heart really goes out to his family and we forgive him and we want the family to know that we bear them no ill will. Uh, so that kind of religion seems to be pretty different in its effects than this kind of religion. And so maybe just saying religion poisons everything is a little bit, you know, your, your categories seem to be a bit broad if you're saying that kind of thing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't quite catch... Can you hate religion and, and love God? Well, this is going to... I'm going to come back with a typical philosophy answer again. It depends what you mean by religion, doesn't it? So, uh, the root of the word religion, religio, means um, to be bound or, or to be in a relationship. Actually, to, be, to, be, to bind yourself to something. So, in the sense that to have a proper relationship with God is to kind of bind yourself to him to relate to God, well then, no, you can't relate to God without relating to God. And if that's all religion means, then no. But obviously, religion means a lot of other things besides. So when we say religion, you might immediately think of, for example, um, certain kinds of organised religion, where we have certain power structures in place, certain traditional ways of doing things, uh, certain traditional ways of expressing that relationship with with God or or ultimate reality as they conceive it in that religion or whatever. Uh, And there, I think you have to take a much more kind of case-by-case basis and say, obviously, if, if, if there's going to be more than one of you in your relationship, in your religion, in your relationship with God... You're, you're probably going to have to sort of organise yourself some, somehow, otherwise you're just doing stuff randomly. Okay, so that, that's not helpful. So we're going to have to do things in some kind of organised way. Um, so we have an organised religion. Um, but does that mean that we necessarily have to have um, a way of organising the religion that is oppressive towards women? Or um, that... Um, you know, makes people dress in a certain way, even though that's not explicitly stated in the scriptures of that religion or whatever. Well, obviously not. So there are there are ways of being religious that, that are obviously less than, than helpful. But again, you don't want to 
kind of chuck the baby out with the bathwater. You want to try and, and, and find <coughs> helpful, wise ways of being religious rather than unhelpful, unwise ways of being religious. Yeah. Good question. Thank you. Um, okay. Ask Robert the actual, and then I think I've, my brain's getting quite full, so we'll have like a five-minute break, and then come back. Do people mm-hmm. have to do that, or would you rather not have a five-minute break? Chef hands. Five-minute break. Chef hands. No five-minute break. Chef hands. And don't mind, so you didn't blame it for anything. Okay. <laughs> well, for my sake, we'll have a brief one. But Robert, what are you going to? Yeah, so uh, to be an atheist is, is to have a viewpoint on the issue, is to have a philosophical viewpoint on this issue of is there a God or not? Just because you say it's not a religious viewpoint, it's still a philosophical viewpoint on it. Um, and certainly if you're the kind of atheist who wants to organise with other atheists to do something about that kind of flows out from that viewpoint. So you might say, because I think religion it tends to be bad for people, I want to organise with other atheists to campaign against, um, you know, against having bishops in the House of Lords or something like that. Then you have an organised philosophical viewpoint. Um, whether you just because it doesn't perhaps qualify as a religious viewpoint doesn't mean that it's not a viewpoint and a philosophical viewpoint, and that doesn't it doesn't mean it's a sort of neutral um, position or something like this. Uh, it is having a, a viewpoint on the issue, and sometimes having that viewpoint leads people to want to to have certain effects in the world, just as much as having a, a belief that there's a God and he has a certain character leads you to wanting to do certain things in the world for him and so on. So, yeah, everyone has a, has a viewpoint. The main thing is, have you at least paid some attention to, to thinking sensibly as much as you can about that viewpoint? And are you trying to live consistently with it as well as you can? Yeah, it is your Yes, yeah, that's right. So, philosophers will talk about believing that something is true and the difference between just believing that something is true and actually believing in something or believing in someone. Um, So it's really, there's a big difference between believing that a certain football club must be the best at football because they've won the most tournaments in the last decade or whatever. That doesn't mean I'm a fan. Doesn't mean I've got any interest in football. Doesn't mean I'd ever bother paying money to go to watch a match. That sort of belief about them is very different from someone who is a fan and will pay their money to go and see them play uh, and will buy the you know buy the yearbook and the uh, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's one thing to have a beliefs about God. Um, but if you think there is there is one, you then face this whole other issue of, well, actually, how am I going to relate to him? Do I, am I going to love him or not? Um, does he love me or not? What kind of God is he? And how am I going to respond to that? Um, it's, um, it's good to think about the, the sort of abstract intellectual issues. You know, you need to believe the football club exists 
before you bother going to watch them play. You wouldn't, <laughs> why would you bother going to try and buy a ticket if you don't think they exist, you know? Um, but just because you think they exist, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're someone who's going to go and buy a ticket. Um, so those are two different, different things, aren't they? Um, uh, and just as with a fo- football club or um, any other thing in life, really, I, I think um, we need to think about our beliefs about God but then we also need to carry that over into our, into our attitudes, into our actions um, towards God. Yeah. Brilliant. Right, so finish what's left of the food, go to the toilet. We have, what we're going to do, we're going to, we'll, yeah, we'll go a few, five, five minutes, ten minutes over past the half past eight. If, you, if it gets later and you need to run off, that's actually fine. But we will probably aim to be definitely fully finished by 22 100%. Peter's gone through and picked out some questions that look interesting. The rest of the questions is he's going to take home and try and send out an email with responses to them all. So if you your question, if it hasn't got read, it will out, it will be considered and, and we'll talk about it in cell groups and stuff with Peter's responses. But I, yeah. And if you have any, you want to stick around for a few mm. minutes and ask any other questions, then sure. we'll still be here. Um, there's the first question, which is quite confusing to me because I have no idea what it is says, ideas on the cosmological argument. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is someone doing philosophy and ethics? At the, at, uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> Everyone's looking around to see who it is. Right? <laughs> Connor, look at uh, that. Okay. The name like Shaw. Uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, so maybe please explain what it is first okay. and then he'll... So we've got a broad audience here, here as well. So uh, cosmological arguments, there are a whole family of arguments for God's existence which are about what, what is the cause of the universe, the cosmos, being here. Um, we're trying to answer questions like why, why does something exist rather than nothing existing? Or looking at questions like um, given that the the cosmos, the physical cosmos, has a, has a history, it has a, a past, but that past had a beginning. Um, the universe is, isn't kind of infinite in the past. If you went back in the TARDIS, you could get to a day when there was no previous day, because it's the first day, the, an hour well, there is no previous hour because it's the first hour because the universe had a beginning in the past um, according to Big Bang cosmology and various philosophical arguments as well. And that kind of raises very much the question of does that reality, that universe, need some kind of cause or is it just there without a cause? So one very... um, simple way of putting a cosmological argument would be to to say this Um, given that something exists there's basically only one of two different ways in which something that exists can exist, two different explanations you can say either it was caused by something else, something outside itself it doesn't, doesn't cause its own existence it would have to exist in order to cause anything so you can't cause your own existence because you'd already have to exist in order to do anything. So that, that doesn't make any sense. So if something exists, either it had a cause or it didn't. Okay? 
That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Now, so is it possible for everything that exists to be the kind of thing that only exists because it has a cause of its existence? But hang on a minute, we're asking this about everything. Is it possible for everything that exists to be the kind of thing that needs a cause outside of itself? But that that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Because what is there outside of everything to do any causing? Well, outside of everything is... Nothing, okay? And nothing can't do anything <laughs> like causing stuff because it isn't anything, okay? <laughs> so so it, it, seems, it seems to not be possible for everything to be the kind of thing that needs a cause. In other words, there must at least be one thing. There must at least be one thing that exists but doesn't need a cause of its existence. And that is that idea of an uncaused cause of things is at least part of what people have traditionally meant by talking about God. God is the creator, but he didn't create himself and nothing created him. He's just the uncaused cause of things. And particularly when you look at the question like that comes up from the whole big bang issue when you're talking about physical Things, physical things, physical events in our experience are things that have causes outside of themselves. Yeah. But if Big Bang cosmology tells us that there was a, a beginning to the universe, there was a first physical event, in other words. Yeah, if you trace back the series of physical events, you get to a first one. But physical events are things that need causes. They kind of depend on other things. Okay, so the first physical event probably had a cause. But what could have caused the first physical event? It can't be the previous physical event, can it? It can't be the previous physical, because there isn't a previous physical thing before the first physical event. So if the first physical event needs a cause the cause of that first physical event must have been something non-physical. Something non-physical, but capable of causing the existence of a physical thing in the physical universe. And again, that's part of what people have traditionally meant by talking about God. Um, He's a a, a mind, a non-physical reality, but capable of causing the existence of the cosmos. Okay. And so these kind of issues about why is there a universe? Does the fact that it have a past imply anything about you know, why is it here and things? That, that whole family of arguments are, are cosmological arguments. And as you can probably tell, I, I think there's a lot um, to be said for that kind of argument. Fantastic. I think we've got time for one more question. Unless anyone wants to ask anything about what he's said. <laughs> come up to me. Come up to me afterwards if you've got a particular um, 
question on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's. We'll finish on. There's been quite a few questions about um, heaven mm. and things about being. How can I be perfect? And what about people who are bad and all this kind of thing? So I think this one sort of sums it up, and it's quite interesting. It says, "Without my brother, I'm not me. He isn't a Christian. So how am I going to be truly myself in heaven when he won't be there?" And in brackets says, "I hope he will be." But yeah. But given, let's. You know, for the sake of argument, assume that he, he wasn't. Um, I think here we would say, I, I know what you mean by saying, I, I wouldn't be myself. Um, I wouldn't be me without my brother. Um, but going back to sort of our, one of our earlier questions, you, you don't mean that literally. Okay. So, uh, you know, just as a thought experiment, just imagine... Um, that um, your brother um, had died very young, or that your brother gets knocked over by a bus next week, okay? Um, Your brother gets knocked over by a bus next week. You would be very sad about this. Um, You would undergo some changes, Perhaps in your in your personality, because because of that. But in three years' time, in two months' time, you'd still be the same person. It would still make sense for you to say things like, um, "I I used to have a brother. I there was a person who was identical to me." And that person had a brother. So, literally speaking, you would still be you. What, you really, what you're really saying is, my brother is a big part of my life, a big influence on, um, on my life, and uh, I would really want him to be in heaven with me. Um, yes. That's all true, and I think it's it's going to come down to as you say, and and I hope he will be. Um, and I would say that ultimately, that's up to your brother. Um, God won't force us to do what we don't want to. He won't force us to have a relationship with him if we don't want one, because that wouldn't be loving. That would be like think, seeing God as some kind of cosmic stalker who kept making advances towards you even though you said no I'm not interested you know and God is not you know not a cosmic stalker he would always want a relationship but he allows us to reject him um, he makes himself vulnerable to us in that sense through creating us and, and giving us free will um, uh, and that is the that is the kind of the love of God expressed by Christ on the cross saying I will, I will take from you your rejection of me and I will, I'm prepared to not let that stand in the way of us having a loving relationship. I will forgive you. I'm, I'm, I won't excuse you because you don't have an excuse. You really have done the wrong thing. And you re- <laughs> but I'm prepared to forgive you. I, I have grace uh, on you. And it will ultimately be between your brother and God, as to where that, that ends up. But in terms of you still being you, literally, you, you are you, 
and you will be you with or without your brother. And ultimately, in a, in a Christian context, the, the, the main relationship for determining who we are is our relationship with God. We're created for relationship with God, and in that context, we are to have relationships with, with other people. So that's why Jesus, in, in response to the, the question about what's the greatest commandment, says it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. So in the context of our relationship with God, we love other people. Because I know I'm a sinner and I'm thankful to God for forgiving me and loving me despite that, because I know he also loves you even though you're a sinner and you've done things that hurt me, whatever, then I am in no position to withhold my love and forgiveness from you whilst at the same time accepting God's love and forgiveness of me because I love him and he loves you I'm going to love you as well um, but that that God kind of love is not a forcing myself upon you if you don't want me kind of love um, it is a a longing to be in relationship, a willing to offer forgiveness, to be vulnerable to the other, to offer grace, but ultimately not forcing you to accept something that you don't want. Right. If you're not sad, then you must have forgotten that your brother's not there, in which case he's not part of your life anymore, in which case you're not eating. Right, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I, that, that is, that is it's, it's a very good issue. I think, <laughs> and then this comes up with the whole, the whole kind of issue of, of heaven and hell, which kind of raises this, this issue. And I think, um, ultimately, it, it comes down to, although God gives people the freedom to reject him uh, and therefore we have the possibility that people we would want to be in heaven with will decide not to be there with us sadly um, should uh, should the the people who have the power of, of rejecting those relationships should they should they have the power of making us feel sad for eternity because they didn't want to join in. Um, should we, should God allow them that, that power as well as the power to say, I don't want any part of it and therefore I've got the power to make, to mean that nobody can be perfectly happy just because I don't want to join in. That, that also wouldn't seem fair. You see, so it, it seems to me that that um, God must give people the freedom to, to opt out themselves, but without giving them the freedom to 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 make it therefore mean that no one else can be happy for eternity with God. Um, and however God arranges for that to be, it must be the case. I think that we can be completely fulfilled and, and happy 
in heaven in relationship with God um, despite the fact that we would have liked other people to be there and joining in and I don't think that necessarily means that we have to sort of have our mind memories wiped uh, about about people I, I think that that whole sense of the way in which God can redeem things like the way in which the Bible talks about redeeming the times or the way in which even the risen Christ in his glory when he appears to the disciples in the glorified resurrection spiritual body can show them the marks of the nails and of his suffering that he's been through because that suffering is now transformed into something that is actually glorious um, because it speaks of the love of God for people and so it's no longer um, a horrible thing of suffering which it was on the cross it's now through God's power been redeemed into something that is itself beautiful in a way and in a way in which it might seem odd to people to say you know you can look at a great painting of uh, of Jesus on the cross or whatever and say that's beautiful and someone else might say good grief it's a, it's a p- picture of a, of, of a bloodied man being tortured to death that's beautiful but when you understand the context and what's actually going on there what God is saying through that to us yes it is and so it's redeemed in God and and, and God will redeem um, the suffering of this world um, in the next so I don't think it it necessarily will involve a sort of forgetfulness kind of thing but but somehow God will redeem what is what is good about the relationships with people that that aren't there with us uh, in a way that we can celebrate that that goodness and uh, not not be saddened for eternity by their lack of being being there somehow um, and that's about as close as I can come to imagining an answer because I'm I'm not in heaven yet so I can't tell you how it works. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think that's been absolutely brilliant and fantastic. I think we should give Peter a round of applause. Thank you. Peter has a website, uh, if you just Google his name, or is it www.peterswilliams.com. Peterswilliams.com. Yeah. There's also a podcast he's been recording this evening, um, and that'll be available. And I'll Yeah, when I get around to putting it up, a couple of weeks. Up, but, uh, if you email it to yeah. me, I'll send it out to everybody else as well, so you can listen back to some of the things that got said yeah. here. Do you want to say about your... Uh, a couple of books this year. This year, I'm C.S. Lewis versus The, the New Atheist. If you want to find out more about The New Atheist, and, what, and I just came out with a... This is an introduction to philosophy explicitly aimed at Christians. So written from a Christian viewpoint by a Christian for other Christians. Introduction to philosophy. Um, good book for if you're doing A-level philosophy and, and whatever. There are two chapters on the cosmological argument in here. Uh, stuff like that. Uh, so um, that might be useful, particularly if you're sort of doing A-levels or going off to university and thinking of um, those kind of issues about, about God and human nature and free will and, and truth and arguing well. There's a couple of chapters on arguing well and how arguments should work and how they don't work, which is useful, whatever subject you're doing, when you have to argue well at uni and things. So um, you might you know, come and cast your eye over those and um, you can get them online from Amazon and all that. So 
Yeah, you can even get both of these um, on Kindle. Ah, oh, yes. yes. My yes. And also tomorrow night, uh, Peter's in church, and it's the whole church is invited, not just mm. for the young people, which this was yeah. at first. Um, but it's for everybody, so if you want more and you want to come along, it's tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Oh, you tell me. Yeah, I... I, I <laughs> yeah, Penny's nodding. Great. Okay specifically around God and science? Yeah, it's sort of uh, nat- naturalism, the worldview of naturalism and science and uh, reasons for believing in God. Yeah. Cool. So, another round of applause, I think. It's worthwhile. Thank you.